Welcome to Conversations for the Future, where we delve into the mysteries of psyche, nature, and cosmos to reimagine our place in the world and a viable human presence on this jeweled planet. We explore topics ranging from spirituality to science, from human development to cultural change, from the simple experiences of being human to the profound unfolding of the universe, all of which help bring meaning to our lives and a sense of belonging to the world. I'm your host, Nate Bacon. Hello and welcome everyone to the first ever podcast episode of Conversations for the Future. I'm absolutely delighted to have my first guest here with me today and to be launching this show in conversation with him. I'm so glad he said yes to being here as I couldn't imagine starting with anyone else. So let me introduce him. Bill Plotkin, PhD, is an eco-depth psychologist, wilderness guide, and agent of cultural regeneration. As founder of Southwest Colorado's Animus Valley Institute, he has, since 1980, guided thousands of people on the journey of soul initiation. He's also been a research psychologist, studying non-ordinary states of consciousness, a rock musician, and whitewater river guide. In 1979, on a solo winter ascent of an Adirondack peak, Bill experienced a call to spiritual adventure, leading him to abandon academia in search of his true calling. His previous books are Soulcraft, Crossing into the Mysteries of Nature and Psyche, which is an experiential guide, Nature and the Human Soul, Cultivating Wholeness and Community in a Fragmented World, which is a nature-based stage model of human development, and Wild Mind, A Field Guide to the Human Psyche which is a nature-based map of the psyche. He is also the author of a new book called The Journey of Soul Initiation, a field guide for visionaries, evolutionaries, and revolutionaries, which is being released on January 12th, 2021, and which we'll be discussing today in depth. You can find his work online at animus.org. Okay, that was the formal introduction. More personal introduction is Bill is a... Uh, dear friend and colleague and mentor of mine um, for many, many years. And uh, so much of my life <laughs> has been oriented around my uh, relationship with him and my learning and growing as a person. And I'm completely thrilled and honored to have you, Bill, here as my first guest. Uh, so thank you so much for being here. Great pleasure. Yeah. Thanks, Nate. Um, it's great to be your first guest on, on your podcast. And um, this happens to be um, the first public conversation or interview I'm doing um, that's part of the launch of this new book, Journey of Soul Initiation. So it's a um, great honor and pleasure for me as well to this for this to be a kind of first for me with you here. And um, I'm delighted to be uh, talking about the book with you and in this conversation because um, you also are a soul initiation guide and, uh, as you say, a colleague of mine, uh, are being colleagues together for so many years and, and really close friends. And, um, and I'm well aware, because of those things, of your, the depth of, of your psyche and um, your your capacity of brilliance when it comes to um, 
uh, asking the biggest and deepest questions of life and uh, sorting through the um, challenges and opportunities that come through um, creating models for um, uh, dimensions and kinds of human development that have uh, mostly disappeared from the contemporary scene. So uh, this is just perfect and uh, to be in this conversation with you today. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for those kind words. That's a great intro to my podcast. I appreciate that. Um, okay, so as you said, we've, we've uh, been colleagues for a number of years. And so I've been aware of this book, even in its, you know, first inkling um, stages of possibility of your considering writing it. And um, uh, I also know that it's uh, probably much older even than those um, those first inklings that I was aware of. Uh, is it fair to say that this book is something like 40 years in the making? That's fair. Yeah, I started doing this kind of work 40 years ago, 1980. <clears throat> and at first, um, I thought about what I was doing quite differently than I do now, and that the, my understanding, um, along with my colleagues like you, of what we're up to has been continuously evolving and surprising me, us, about where it ends up going. So yeah, 40 years ago, um, I started guiding uh, a kind of Western, contemporary Western approach to the pan-cultural vision fast. Uh, but pretty quickly, the work that um, I was doing deepened and diversified and branched out so that it wasn't so much about vision fasts, but about the goal of soul initiation. And uh, my colleagues and I discovered that there's many ways to, to get there, to this, um, this outcome or achievement of soul initiation. Um, and so we began developing many, many different kind of practices. And, um, and my first book, Soulcraft, which was published in 2003, was, it wasn't actually the book I really wanted to write at that time. Um, I, I wanted to, quite frankly, write this book that I'm just, that's officially being released two days from now. Um, but it's, there's so many radical ideas and uh, both premises and conclusions from this new book that, um, that um, my agent and my publisher told me 17 years ago that it wouldn't be good to start out with, with this book. And, and then between that first book, Soulcraft, and this one, there were these seemed a necessity to do the, those two middle books. So yes, um, to answer your question, yeah, it's been developing for at least 40 years, um, what's in this new book. And the book is um, primarily about, I mean, the journey of soul initiation is my name for the process of becoming a true adult. And so let me say early on here, um, just to, among other things, plant some seeds for our conversation, that um, it's a radical statement, really, to say um, this is a process for becoming a true adult because I've come to understand that true adulthood is a very rare thing now in the contemporary world, not just in the Western world, but around the world. 
um, outside of intact indigenous cultures, true adulthood has become quite rare. And so um, one thing, of course, we're going to end up talking about here is what do I mean by true adulthood? But there's, there's profound implications that over the last hundreds or thousands of years, um, many of the um, cultures in the world today have decayed in the sense that they don't support maturation to, to reaching true adulthood. And, and um, what we're seeing in the world today is a result of that. Yeah, that's a great first statement. Um, and I think before we get into the uh, beautiful complexity of what you're really um, proposing and offering in this book um, and in your work in a larger sense, um, I'd love to um, take, a, take a little bit of time to orient um, from a, a larger big picture context to help us understand some of what it is that you're really up to, and then dive into some of that more nuanced content of the book, Good. and um, you know, getting into those those um, interesting and kind of precise questions, uh, such as, what do you mean by true adulthood? Um, so yeah, before we go there, um, I want to read a intro quote. Uh, it was on page five of your book. And this might be my favorite quote that I have found so far in your book. On page five, you say, I'll say it again and more emphatically. I am not hawking a new self-help fad, and the descent to soul is not therapy or a rite of passage. Rather, this book is something like a psycho-spiritual bomb placed as carefully as I'm able at the very heart of the techno-industrial civilization currently ruining our world. More importantly, the descent is a generative, seed-germinating wildfire, indispensable for any human or planetary future worth inhabiting. So I want to really hone in on the those two images that you give us here at the start of the book um, as an orientation for our conversation here, this, um, what you're offering here being both a psycho-spiritual bomb placed at the heart of techno-industrial civilization currently ruining our world, and also as a generative seed germinating wildfire that's indispensable for any human or planetary future worth inhabiting. Would you care to elaborate on that quote for us? Or anything uh, along those lines? Well, first of all, Nate, I, I want to um, express my gratitude that you like that quote, um, because uh, my editor wanted me to get rid of it. Um, she thought it was too, I guess you'd say, incendiary. Um, so, but, and I told her, that's no, that really says what I'm up to here as concisely and directly as I can. So, um, yeah, psycho-spiritual bomb that, um, of course, to be uh, um, distinguished from the, the more common kind of uh, bombs that hurt flesh. Um, a psycho-spiritual bomb, it's, the book 
is potentially that, in the sense that if it's taken seriously um, by people and if it uh, makes its way over the decades into the culture, it would make uh, our contemporary uh, conformist consumer culture impossible. Um, that the, the kind of societies we have in the world now, for the most part, that, and the kind of culture we have ourselves, uh, is made possible only by a kind of uh, uh, infantilizing or um, um, by a uh, arrest arresting of the of human development and uh, so many of our cultural and societal structures are um, are possible because uh, one way to say it is that it's easier to manipulate children and adolescents than it is to manipulate true adults and elders. And so a culture, and this is over hundreds if not thousands of years that this um, kind of cultural decay has uh, unfolded um, so that it's hard to even see what the um, or understand or appreciate what the alternatives are. And so in one sense, what my uh, work is about, uh, even bigger than this book, but more generally, my work has been about uh, visualizing what a healthy contemporary culture would look like, how it's different from our contemporary uh, Western and even many non-Western cultures, but also how it's different from traditional indigenous cultures. What would a contemporary Western culture look like if it was healthy, and if there were, uh, if most everybody made it to true adulthood, and for those who lived long enough to true adulthood, what would that look like? Um, and so, uh, one of the things that's difficult about our work and this book in particular is um, it's the writing. I think is pretty straightforward and easy to understand, but if you really take to heart the implications that. Um, we've lost the initiation processes that lead to true adulthood. Um, it has a profound, profound implications, and most, most every social structure we have—politics, uh, economics, energy development, uh, social interactions, religion, education—everything—would change profoundly. So, and that's what I mean by a psycho-spiritual bomb. It, it, it's a it's a culture. It's intended as a culture interrupter, um, not because I started out wanting to be a culture interrupter, but I discovered that the implications of the work my colleagues and I were doing uh, is that if we took it seriously, um, it it would, in some sense, undermine or be subversive to most of the cultural systems we have these days. So that's the psycho-spiritual bomb aspect, and then the uh, germinating generative uh, catalyst for a new healthy culture. That's primarily what the book and our work is in, intended to be um, in a couple ways. One is that uh, initiated adults are people who are visionaries, or as I say in the subtitle of the book, visionaries evolutionaries and revolutionaries. Um, 
one doesn't have to be initiated adult to make to support profound change in our culture. One only has to be what I would consider a healthy adolescent. But the initiated adults, um, being that their work is rooted um, in the greater web of life, in the earth community, um, in their watersheds, in, in uh, what David Abram refers to as the more than human world, uh, the kinds of cultural and societal changes that true adults can bring about are go deeper and they're more profound. Um, so that's the sense in which um, the book is meant to be a seed or a catalyst for uh, future uh, mature cultures. And uh, the second sense uh, that all the work that an individual does to get themselves ready for the journey of soul initiation um, these kinds of personal development address the kinds of deficits that we see almost in see everywhere through contemporary societies now. So even becoming a healthy adolescent, if enough people in the contemporary world did that, we'd have much, much healthier um, cultures, and we'd have much less of the horrible uh, global and societal breakdowns that we're seeing today. So I want to hone in on the human development aspect of what you're saying, because I feel like it's a really um, radical thing that you're proposing here and very different. It uh, stands outside of the norms of how we think about the challenges in our world today. And you're saying something along the lines of uh, you're making an equation between the cultural decay um, that we experience on a large scale. And um, I'm sure you would add in the um, ecological, biological um, collapse dimensions to that yes. as well. You're, you're equating these challenges. Uh, you're saying that their, their source primarily is in a, a rested or stunted human development and in in a, a sort of failure of um, the human development process on a large scale in contemporary culture and contemporary people. And that in and of itself is a pretty radical thing that almost, and that is a, basically a premise that you're starting from here that your work grows out of. And so um, also human development is, it's not a phrase that most people use. Uh, it sounds a little bit clinical or psychological or something like that, academic maybe. Um, and yet it's at the heart of what your work is. And your work is um, not only um, uh, rigorous and, and um, has a beautiful structure to it, um, but it's at heart mystical. It's of the, of the mysteries. Yeah. And yet you're talking about human development, which I think in most people's ears sounds, you know, there's a, a sense of it being dry or academic or something like that. So can you, can we just hone in on that phrase for a moment, human development? What do you mean by that? And why is it so important? Yeah, okay. <clears throat> Probably the first thing I should say as a preface is that cultures, um, evolve and decay on various dimensions and uh, Western culture, ours, um, 
while it's been, it's, my point is that it's been decaying psychologically and spiritually, and because of that, also socially. Um, but there's other ways in which uh, Western culture has been unfolding and growing and diversifying uh, and being uh, absolutely magnificent in a variety of ways, mostly um, in the realm of arts and sciences. <clears throat> you know, music and fashion and uh, all the arts. And development of technology, of course, and, and the sciences more generally. In that way, there have been lots of advances in Western culture. Um, <clears throat> but specifically, when it comes to our psychological and spiritual development, I believe it, uh, we, things there's been obstacles and, and our development has been stunted. So by human development, I simply mean the, the ways that we grow from birth or even conception on uh, to become the human beings that we become. And um, my background, I'm not, I don't remember if you've mentioned it, is um, I'm trained as a, as a research and clinical psychologist. I wasn't particularly trained as a developmental psychologist, but I found my, that I had to get into developmental psychology um, in the early years of <clears throat> guiding these more mystical uh, nature-based journeys that ultimately became the journey of soul initiation. <clears throat> I needed to get into um, understanding human development because I noticed that um, that most of the people who came on our early programs, which were mostly vision fast, uh, were not able to go into the depths. They weren't able. They didn't have encounters with what I call soul. And by the way, we haven't defined soul yet either. And I mean something very different than most people mean, but, but related. <clears throat> but my point here is that um, that I that my colleagues and I in the early years in the '80s noticed that wow, there's a, a lot of people who are in the same groups, vision fast groups, um, who have profound experiences on their vision fast, but they're not soul oriented at all. They they don't end up uh, illuminating for the person what their uh, life purpose is, or more specifically, what their place in the greater Earth community is, which is the goal of uh, soul initiation, to discover our place in, in the more than human world. So, um, so I, I started asking questions. Well, why, what is it about the people who are able to go to those depths, and how are they different from others? And so I started thinking about um, stages of human development, which, of course, we psychologists, uh, that's what we do, one of the things we do. But I was aware, none of the psychology maps for human development were working for me. Um, most of them seem to tend to be biologically based or age based, with the idea that if you're more or less neurologically normal and you get older, you progress from childhood to adolescence to adulthood to elderhood. And it became increasingly plain to see, but that wasn't at all the case, that there's a certain kind of uh, biological, neurological, and social development that seems to happen for everybody who's neurologically normal through uh, puberty. But then I 
um, began to discover that there are some innate natural aspects of childhood development that don't necessarily happen, even if someone's neurologically normal and gets older. Um, and in particular, it seemed that uh, by the time most contemporary people reach early adolescence, which is to say once they go through puberty, um, they tend to be in a very diminished, stunted form of early adolescence. And that uh, to, to, um, to make an even more profound and uh, unpleasant conclusion that it seems most Western people get stuck in that stunted form of early adolescence and never even make it to a healthy adolescence. So, yeah, this is a, uh, it's a very different way of looking at the stages of human development. Uh, in, in the model I ended up developing, co-created with my colleagues, there's eight stages of um, human life, and most people only get into the third one and get stuck there for the rest of their lives in the contemporary world. And this is, it's a both a radical and a profound point because uh, it ended up, it resulted in my wanting to conclude the following, that virtually every global uh, crisis that we have in the world today has as a foundation arrested human development. That people miss a lot of things, a lot of uh, essential dimensions of becoming human in childhood and then also in early adolescence and then we just get stuck there. And uh, in the map I developed, the journey of soul initiation can't begin and does not begin until the second half of adolescence, which I call late adolescence. And that's a stage most people never get to uh, because of uh, deficiencies in their growing, psychological growing in childhood and early adolescence. So, um, yeah, it's, how am I doing? Am I answering that question? Yeah. I mean, I think so, in the sense that I, there's a really mysterious connection there that we don't have to dwell on, but uh, the connection between the human development process and um, cultural flourishing or cultural forms, cultural expressions that um, seems to go to the very heart of our humanity and, and to this... Uh, this there's a kind of mutual or reciprocal process there that the culture shapes the person but the the person also shapes the culture yes and there's a, a real participatory dynamic there that um i just feel like is really worth highlighting as we find our way into the more um uh, into the deeper layers of your work and in this book in particular yeah um there's a lot of contemporary uh, observers of culture who have been saying for some decades now that true elders have become rare in contemporary society and I completely agree but virtually no one other than me that I've found so far is saying it's not just true elders it's true adults um, the way you get to true elderhood is having been a true adult for some decades <clears throat> So, and a culture is sustained and deepened 
primarily by the adults and elders, and shaped, the culture is shaped by true adults and elders. And so if you have a culture with very few adults, and even less elders, there's this natural psychological and spiritual decay that shows up in all of the major systems like education, religion, politics, economics, and so on. Um, and in the current world, um, we, especially the events of the last year or two in, in this country, we're more and more tuned into uh, systemic racial oppression, which is absolutely true and is beginning to be um, addressed uh, in more effective ways, but we have a long ways to go. But my understanding has become that there's something I'm now calling systemic human development oppression that we find all over the world, and it results in things like social injustice uh, and racial uh, oppression and so on. That um, mature humans don't do the things that make up Western history. That's just not the way mature humans and mature human societies act. Um, and it's been so long since we've had the basic cultural structures that lead to true adults and elders that there's almost no one who even remembers what we lost. But if we look at intact indigenous cultures, we can get a sense of what we lost. But again, I want to emphasize that a future healthy culture will have some significant differences from healthy indigenous cultures. And maybe at some point in this conversation later, we can get into why that would be. Okay, back to you. Yeah, I would love to get into that at some point. Can you, I think this is a good time to go there. Can you tell us what you mean by true adulthood? And why is it so dangerous? Yeah, good, good questions. Um, I have a few different definitions. Uh, ultimately, the, the best definition is the model of human development that we've, we've created um, called the eco-soul-centric developmental wheel. But here's a, a shorter way to get into it. It's a three-part definition. A, a true adult is a person who experiences their membership in the world. First and foremost, they, their place of belonging is one they experience as being in the larger Earth community. Like that's, the, that's their primary experience, sense of what they belong to is the Earth community. That's part one. And second, um, that adult is a person who has had one or more revelations or visions of their unique place in that greater Earth community. And third, they are embodying that place as a gift to their people and to the greater Earth community. So, and embedded in that definition of a true adult um, is actually um, a definition of a healthy early adolescent and a healthy late adolescent. Because a healthy early adolescent experiences their primary membership uh, as being in this greater earth community of many species and habitats and waters and land and so on. Um, and that's something that develops during a, a healthy early adolescence. 
So by the end of that early adolescence, that's a, a primary experience, a place of belonging. Um, and all the other kinds of belongings are absolutely essential to the individual's life and the color of their life, namely their family and their neighborhood and their ethnicity and perhaps their religion and their social group and their music and so forth. These are all important uh, aspects of identity. But the fact that I am a human participant in an animate world that includes all these other species, that becomes primary in a healthy early adolescence. And then late adolescence is when the journey of soul initiation happens. And one way to say the goal of that journey is that the individual discovers what their place, their unique place in the greater earth community. And the phrase I use for that is their unique ecological niche. And that is my definition of soul. Um, so when, every, when most people use the word soul, not in the religious sense of like what leaves the body when we die, which never made a whole lot of sense to me, but um, in the more general psychological sense, when we talk about soul, we almost everybody agree, it has something to do with depth, with meaning, and with purpose. Um, and what I came to understand is that, or believed, um, is that Western psychology, which, by the way, is only about 120 years old, um, went off the tracks early on because it, it, it didn't have an ecological frame for the development of its psychological science. Um, and so it was as if psychology got divorced from ecology from the very beginning because of the nature of Western culture back then in the late uh, 1900s. Um, so what it became clear to me... Maybe, that, you, can I interrupt for just a second? Yeah. Can, we, can we say uh, even more so that psychology being divorced from ecology, even more so the, there's something about the, the, the nature of um, the contemporary consciousness of, of the times where um, psyche was uh, believed to be split from its embedded context in the natural world. It's not just the, the ologies of psychology and ecology as disciplines, but the actual experience of, of our being um, being split in that way, or a, a belief that we um, were not embedded, in fact, we are not a part of. Yes, yeah. Context. Yes, I agree that um, that one of the ways to say what's right at the root or the heart of the cultural dysfunctions we have is the fact that our Western culture has been separated from the greater natural animate world for so long. Um, it's an artificial separation, but it's it's a uh, it has real consequences both within our psyches and. Uh, in our culture and our relationship to the greater world. So, so yeah, so I ended up with a, a definition of soul which is primarily ecological. It's not really, it's not primarily a psychological definition of soul. It's not a religious one or a spiritual one. It's ecological. That, um, and the thing that's, that's, that I so much enjoy about it um, and also has been mind-blowing, is that it just simply makes, it treats us humans as if we're like all the other beings on the planet. Like everything is what it is on the planet, 
because of its ecological niche. Another way to say that, my favorite way of saying it, is everything is what it is by virtue of its relationship with everything else. So that every species and every individual of any species is what it is because of its ecological relationships. And so with my ecological definition of soul, I'm essentially bringing, I'm, I'm cooperating with this um, uh, trend now in, in the world, in the Western world, of bringing the human back into the context of the more than human world, which is to say the greater earth community, the greater web of life, including in uh, our definition of what soul is. So if soul, as I define it, is our place, a unique ecological niche, that's what gives us our ultimate individual purpose and meaning, is that each of us was born to um, take a certain place in the greater earth community. And we humans do that through our, in part through our social and cultural roles. But the, culture, the, the social roles for an adult, for an initiated adult, is what it is. The social roles are chosen in order to, for the individual to fulfill their ecological niche that they were born to take, just like individuals of any other species are born to take a particular role, and that's the meaning and purpose of their lives. Um, so um, you, were, you made the really great point that um, our individual human development is shaped and limited or enabled by our culture, but our culture is what it is based on what individuals do. And if you have a society that has very few adults and elders, then everything starts decaying, and you end up with all the kinds of crises that we have now. Um, so, one things that one thing that uh, initiated adults do is they create new, um, evolving social forms um, to support um, not only humans but all of life to um, be at least life sustaining. Um, so often now in contemporary circles, we talk about and we wonder, we scratch our heads, uh, and we meet and uh, plan about how could we get to a life-sustaining society because we know that right now we're living in life-destroying societies. But I just want to remind our listeners that um, if human humans are, are a member of the community of life, we're meant not simply to be life-sustaining in our societies, we're meant to be life-enhancing. Everything we know about all life forms on this planet um, every species has its particular gift for not just the sustaining of life, but the enhancing of life. And if we had a healthy adolescent culture, which we're a long ways from, we would have a life-sustaining culture. But if, once we um, grew enough true adults and elders, we would have a life-enhancing culture, which is to say a culture that cooperates consciously with evolution. Okay, back to you. Yeah, I love that. And uh, going back to that phrase, um, which is really a, one of the main hooks that brought me into um, wanting to uh, work with you and learn from you so many years ago, was that, that phrase, everything is what it is by virtue 
of its relationship with everything else. And um, what I hear you saying also is that it's not just what it is. Uh, it's not just that everything is what it is, um, humans and everything else. It's not just that everything is what it is by virtue of its relationship with everything else, but everything, um, in a sense, contributes to the to the expression of everything else. That we're we're kind of made of everything else. Um, that we that our being gives rise to everything else, and everything else give gives rise to our being. That we are kind of mutually implicated in the in our in our becoming. Not just that we're in relationship and we are that, but we are in a process of becoming together. And that becoming together in relationship is what we call the, um, the, the unfolding of the world, evolution, um, yeah. the unfolding of time even. All things uh, together making the world, all things together making each other. Yes, and the problem is that um, in most contemporary cultures, um, we humans have dropped out or resigned from that community, that larger community. We've dropped out of evolution in a certain sense. Um, and uh, it's especially troubling and maddening because every individual human is created or is born with uh, the capacity to contribute to uh, evolution and to contribute to life, not just human life, but um, earth life more generally. <clears throat> and one thing that's either unique or at least rare about humans is that we have this mode of consciousness that involves what we call the ego. Um, by the ego, I don't mean something that we're supposed to get rid of, but something that actually makes us human, which is to say the capacity for conscious um, uh, self-awareness. Um, so that we have this one little component or slice of our consciousness that we call the ego, um, whereas most other species, um, maybe all other species, don't have, and certainly not in the same sense. It's, it's an evolutionary, the ego is an evolutionary uh, opportunity for us, and it's also, um, I'd say, our greatest liability. Um, because the ego in childhood and early adolescence understands itself in terms of its social role or vocational role or maybe religious uh, alignment um, and not in ecologically. Um, so it's um, that I believe that all healthy human cultures, what they have done and do, it may not be many of them now, but what a healthy human culture does is it supports humans in their egocentric phase of development, namely childhood and early adolescence, so that they can get to the point where they can come to know themselves. They can, let's say, put it this way, they can uh, retrieve the knowledge that they were born with about who they are uh, and what their place, what the unique ecological niche is. Um, some indigenous cultures use a phrase something like our original instructions, that each one of us is born with some original instructions 
but we have to go through childhood and early adolescence, healthy versions thereof, to get to the point where our ego consciousness is mature enough that we're able to go on this journey of soul initiation through which we end up remembering the place that we were, the ecological place or the unique ecological niche we were born to take in this lifetime. Um, and when a culture or society loses those initiation processes, then you end up with few adults and elders. You don't end up with no adults and elders because it's built into our psyches to be able to go through this process. But most people seem not to be able to go through it unless they're supported by adult initiators and elders to go through it. So when those initiation processes are lost um, or eroded, then we lose our adults, most of our adults and elders, and the culture starts decaying on um, these dimensions. So your book really is about how, how um, someone becomes a true adult. Maybe that's one way to say what this book is about and, and about what your larger work is about as well. Can we hone in really quickly before we dive into the specific topics of this book on this idea of initiation, which I think has a, a generally a very different context uh, of understanding what people typically mean by initiation. To be initiated, um, to have, uh, to be a uh, initiator, to be initiated, um, there's often an understanding a belief that there's someone in some particular role, social role generally, that is doing an initiation and bringing someone across a threshold into a new sphere. And I, I know that's not at all what you mean. So maybe here's, can you say more about what you mean by initiation, especially in the context of soul initiation, and, and also highlight for us who's doing the initiating? Yeah, great question. <clears throat> so there's all kinds of initiations in life. You could say that when we move from any stage of life, not age, but stage of life, uh, to another, like late childhood to early adolescence, that's an initiation. Um, and when we move from what I call early adolescence to late adolescence, that's a kind of initiation into a new stage of life. But soul initiation is the passage from late adolescence to what I consider early adulthood, initiated adulthood. Um, and so I just gave examples of initiations from one stage of life to the next, from late childhood to early adolescence, early adolescence to late adolescence, late adolescence to early adulthood. Those are um, passages between life stages, and those are kinds of initiations. But in the contemporary world, when people talk about initiation, they're not talking about they're not talking about a passage from one life stage to another. I mean, sometimes they talk that way, but that's not what's actually going on. Um, and there's so many social initiations that have nothing to do with an actual human development or moving to a next stage of life. So, for example. A marriage ceremony is a kind of initiation. A um, bar mitzvah or bas mitzvah in the Jewish tradition is a kind of social initiation into religious majority. 
um, going from a, a, a novice to a priest is a religious social initiation, but none of these uh, are changes in stages of life. Okay, so what I'm focused on here in the book, The Journey of Soul, soul Initiation, is not any kind of social status change, but rather a change from one stage of life to another, but in particular, from one particular stage to another, and that is late adolescence to um, early adulthood. And the initiator is not a human person. The initiator, you might say, is mystery or spirit or God or the soul would be some of the good candidates for the initiator. So there's no human, not even an elder or a group of elders that says, oh, this young person is now an adult and we're going to do this rite of passage ceremony to formally name them an adult because we, the elders, feel that this person has attained adulthood. And so we're going to initiate them into adulthood. My understanding is that it doesn't work that way. It never works worked that way. That is not what soul initiation is about at all. Rather, the individual goes through a series of uh, experiences um, and we might say soul or mystery initiates them. And or we might even say soul or mystery kicks them out of early adolescence, uh, sorry, late adolescence and into early adulthood. And I say kicks them out of because that phrase implies you wouldn't want it to happen to you. And I believe this is true for all passages between um, real stages of human development. That, that, that The way I like to say it is every stage is the best stage to be in. Whenever you're leaving any stage, it's a loss as well as a gain. And it's, um, it's, you could say it's challenging, difficult, maybe even traumatizing. So moving from late adolescence, which is when you're, when you're in it, is the best stage to be in, to early adulthood is, is, is unpleasant in many ways. Because what's great about late adolescence which, again, is a stage that most contemporary humans never reach, is that late adolescence is all about an exploration of the mysteries of the world and the mysteries of the psyche. And it's um, incredibly fascinating. It's one mystical adventure after another. Um, and you would just, anybody in the stage would naturally want to stay in that stage forever because it's so exciting and, and you get to uh, wander uh, deeper and deeper into the mysteries. But when you get kicked out of early adolescence, late adolescence rather, then you have to do something with what you've learned. You have some responsibilities to uh, deliver your gift to the more than human world, which is to say not just the human world, but the, the greater world. And that's a it's a lot of work developing a way, a delivery system for your soul's gift. Um, so the initiator is mystery. It's not a human. It's not a social initiation. The rite of passage, true rites of passage, in my understanding, never move a person from one stage to the next. That's not what a rite of passage does. Rather, what moves a person through a stage and into the next stage is 
success with the task, the developmental task of the stage that they're in. And when a person has succeeded enough with their developmental tasks, then mystery moves us from one stage to the next. And what a rite of passage does is it celebrates this very challenging, possibly traumatic passage. It teaches the person how to adapt to and orient to the new stage of life. It lets their community, their tribe, their clan, their neighborhood know that this person has just shifted in stages from one stage to another and needs some support, could use some support in doing that. So it's mostly a, a formal marking and a celebration um, of, a, of a stage change. I'm referring to a rites of passage. Whereas in the contemporary world, where we're, thank God, discovering that we lost the rites of passage and beginning to create them again, um, still there's a tendency to believe that it's the rite of passage that helps a person move to a new, or gets a person, causes a person to move to a new stage, as opposed to simply helps them in that transition that was created by something before the rite of passage. Hope that was clear enough and useful. <laughs> so, um, one of the things that's been uh, interesting for me and uh, uh, new for me the last little while exploring what you've been doing with this book is making a sharp distinction between the journey of soul initiation and the descent to soul. Right. And your book is called The Journey to Soul Initiation, but it outlines the process of the descent to soul, these phases of the descent to soul. So right. can you, uh, as, as a way to, to begin speaking about these phases of the descent to soul and, and kind of the, the meat of the middle of the book, um, can you do some distinguishing for us between the journey of soul initiation and, and what you call the descent to soul? Yes, yeah, that's essential. Thank you for asking. Um, the descent to soul is one particular spiritual adventure that happens during the journey of soul initiation. It's the central or most important adventure. And it can last anywhere from a few weeks to months or even years long, a single descent to soul. Um, and there can be more than one during the journey of soul initiation. And there can be one or more after the journey of soul initiation. One or more, I'm referring to descent, descents to soul. And I actually wanted to call, title the book, The Descent to Soul, because the truth is that's what the book is about. And um, my wonderful editor at New World Library, um, who's much wiser about um, creating a book than I am, insisted that we did not call it the descent to soul because she felt that there's too many negative connotations to the word descent. And in the contemporary world, it is true. And so I ended up agreeing with her that even though the book is about the descent to soul, we're going to call it the journey of soul initiation, which is the larger process that one or more descents um, take place during. <clears throat> Can we just make a little side note here? Um, talking about the the subversive nature in the, in, the, in the contemporary cultural context, the subversive nature of true adulthood, and um, that we would have such negative connotations uh, around 
the uh, how how one might accurately, um, if not poetically and even mythically, describe the journey of becoming a true adult. Um, uh, to not even be able to use a book title and have that be a probably a wise marketing decision, um, I think kind of exactly points to that subversive nature of um, what is unfortunately uh, a rare um, feat these days, which is making it into what you call true adulthood. Yeah, we're kind of um, something like ascent chauvinists in the contemporary world. It's all about rising prospects and going upward and onward and uh, the ascent to to uh, God or to oneness or to the cosmos. And it's all about the light. Um, it's all uh, contemporary cultures, the, the good direction is going toward the light. And um, what I've come to learn is that darkness is as good as the light, as sacred as the light, and going downward is as sacred as going upward. Um, it's not either or, it's both and. But in our contemporary cultures, it tends to be, it's all about the light, <clears throat> it's all about the ascent. <clears throat> so, for example, in um, Christianity, of course, the descent is associated with going to hell. If you go down, you go into a bad place, and it's somewhere um, that you're sent if, you're, if you've been bad. <clears throat> and it's something that children are taught. Um, in religious organizations, that if you're bad, you go to hell. And so downward is the place you would never want to go. But check it out. If it's the case that you have to go downward on the descent to soul to become a true adult, then what the culture or the religion is essentially saying is that we don't want you to ever grow up. <clears throat> um, we don't want you to go downward, which is where you get initiated um, into your soul life. That's um, the systemic human development oppression you were speaking of. a earlier. major piece of systemic human development oppression. It's a way that you keep children um, childlike their entire lives. Because the, the initiation ceremonies are, uh, are, um, are terminated and uh, forgotten. And, uh, and and embedded even in our language is that going downward is not the, the place you want to go. So why is it a going downward? <clears throat> why is it going out downward? Yeah, it's that's a good question. Um, it's a metaphor, of course. Um, but so you're asking why? Why do we use downward as the metaphor when we're talking about? Um, approaching the soul. Well, one reason is because um, we're going into our depths. We're going into the center of ourself. Um, like if we use the analogy of going to the center of the earth, that's going downward. And we, um, we apply that to going into the center of our own psyche. It's a going downward. Uh, so do downward is going to the center. Or upward is going to the everything, the all-encompassing. So when we talk about um, approaching um, or even merging with the divine, which is the everything, then we go up because we're going away from the center. We're going to that to that direction that encompasses everything. 
But when we're going to the center of our own individual psyches, then that's, that's a downward direction. Again, it's a metaphor. And it's a central metaphor and, and uh, image of this, of the, the phases of the descent to soul. Yeah. Yes. So um, what you call soul Canyon. Exactly. So I use the image of, of going down into a, um, a Canyon. I always think of a, a red rock Canyon in Southern Utah because I've spent so much of my life um, roaming in those canyons. Um, but everybody knows, you know, for example, what the Grand Canyon is and um, what it looks like. And it has these sheer walls and there's a river at the bottom. <clears throat> so um, I've come to think of or map the descent to soul as having five phases and it corresponds to the, what the five um, places on a, um, a canyon. So um, there's the edge of the canyon, in which, like a mesa, that you're approaching the canyon. And then there's the uh, uh, descent down into the canyon, down the canyon wall. Then there's the canyon bottom is the third phase, and the fourth is coming up the other side, and the fifth is continuing on your life on the other side of the canyon. <clears throat> So, um, yeah, this is the major metaphor that we use for the descent in its five phases. And uh, the names we ended up for those five phases are preparation, dissolution, soul encounter, metamorphosis, and enactment. So, what do you think, Nate? Should I go into some brief definitions of the, those five? Yes, I think this is a great time. Lead us. Lead us along that path. Okay, so there's these five phases. Um, these are different than a rite of passage. And um, it's also, I enjoy noting that, um, I think it's important to note that these are different, different from the phases that Joseph Campbell used to describe the um, hero's journey. So, um, yeah, it's, I like to point out, I think it's important for people to understand that the descent to soul is not a rite of passage um, in either the social sense or the sense of moving from one stage of life to another. Um, it happens during a stage, a descent does. And um, a descent to soul is not a a hero's journey. It differs in very significant ways from Campbell's mapping of the hero's journey. And the, I go into some quite some detail on that in the book, at least in, in an appendix. Um, so um, preparation is psychological and spiritual preparation for later beginning of that descent. And in a healthy culture, you wouldn't really have a preparation phase to a descent because your entire life up to the beginning of the going down uh, phase is or was a preparation for going down and it's um, you're being prepared simply by being supported by adults and elders in becoming fully human in the way that you develop in childhood and early adolescence that you're being supported in the um, addressing the tasks 
the developmental tasks of childhood and early adolescence, and you're being supported in um, cultivating all of your innate facets of human wholeness. In the, a map I use in my book, Wild Mind, there's four facets of human wholeness that every human has in common. But unless you're helped by your family and culture to develop those facets, you don't. And what I see in the contemporary world is most people with poorly developed facets, all four of their facets of homeless are poorly developed. Again, that's in the book Wild Mind. Okay, so preparation is essentially a matter of um, uh, cultivating the facets of homeless that are least developed for you individually, and also uh, addressing the most unfinished business you have from your developmental tasks from the first three uh, stages of life. Um, I'll just mention one aspect of preparation for most people. It's it's actually a, it's something that leads to a, uh, a life passage that I call ecological awakening or eco-awakening. And eco-awakening is that moment in your life that, again, most contemporary humans never experience. But it's that moment in your life where you have a uh, visceral, somatic, embodied experience of being a member of the more-than-human animate world. That you, you actually directly experience your how that the ways in which you're as natural and as wild as um, any other kind of animal or um, any flower or anything else of the natural world. That you don't, it's not just the intellectual understanding of it, but it's the actual experience. That experience, eco-awakening, is something that in the starting in the early years of our work, we discovered that many people had for the very first time in their lives um, on their first animus program, which in the early days were always vision fasts. It's not an encounter with soul, it's an awakening to our natural, animal, animate life that we share with all other uh, beings on the planet. So for people who haven't experienced that yet, that's, in the contemporary world, that's an essential piece of preparation for the descent. It's not going to happen uh, until you've had that experience of your own animate nature. Um, and that's something that we support for people in quite a few of our programs, maybe most of them. Not the only thing we do in those programs, but something that happens for people. Okay, so then the second phase, which is the actual descent, um, we call the dissolution phase. Um, like in a rite of passage, you might call that analogously, you might call it um, severance or separation. But what happens on a descent to soul is much more intense and far-reaching than any kind of social severance or separation. It's not a, a mere severance from your social uh, roles or a severance from the village life, the community life for a while. It's much, much, it is those things, but much deeper. It's dissolution in the sense that, um, well, the analogy we use, I use throughout the book is um, with the caterpillar. When a caterpillar goes into, or becomes a chrysalis, or goes into a cocoon, um, its adolescent caterpillar body, 
the caterpillar is the adolescent stage, um, the caterpillar body dissolves. That's why we ended up calling the second phase of the descent to soul dissolution. But what's dissolving for the human is not the body, but the adolescent consciousness, even the mature, a healthy adolescent consciousness, by which I mean a healthy early adolescent understands themselves in terms of their social role, in terms of their belonging in a, in a peer group, in terms of uh, their vocation if they've started one, or their career, or their religious alignment. Um, it's a social or vocational understanding of the self. But what dies on the first descent to soul is a person's belief or faith that they could ever understand or identify themselves in any meaningful way whatsoever in terms of uh, social role or job or career or religious role. That, that, that entire way of identifying ourselves dies. And so there's a complete dissolution of not only our current social role, but our belief in social roles as being primary. Uh, and that's, that's a very profound uh, experience. <clears throat> and, uh, two of the aspects of the dissolution phase is what I call the crisis and the call. That seems for everybody, part of dissolution is some major crisis in their life. Uh, it can be a loss of a job or a romantic relationship. Or like in Carl Jung's case, it was the breakup of, of his relationship with his mentor, Sigmund Freud. Um, so there's always a crisis that destabilizes the ego enough that the person can actually go in that on that descent. It's often called a dismemberment of the ego. Um, I've ended up using the word dissolution. Um, <clears throat> and there's also a call. There's something that calls us to the depths. There's some uh, sense, some belief that there's something calling us, something mystical, something enchanted that's calling us to go through a portal, to cross a threshold into uh, the world as a mystical place in a way we had never understood the world before. Um, so, for example, the, my call on my first ascent um, which was something like a year be or more before my first vision fast, was I was on, I climbed a mountain in the Adirondacks in the winter, snowshoe ascent, and at the top of the summit, um, I felt my entire life as a psychology professor, which I was at the time, just melt away from me. And um, was not something I was expecting, and I was so stunned, I literally fell to my knees in the snow on this summit. And um, this immense experience of grief came up um, f from my belly into my heart, and it was a sense that my whole life as I've known it was over. Uh, and that what I understood the world to be, and and progress was completely dashed. At the same time, a feeling of hope came up with the grief. They came together, hope and grief. Uh, and um, um, 
it was profoundly moving. Uh, it was a very emotional experience. And in that state, I looked out um, onto this vast uh, valley, of a snow-covered valley, and there's one particular river um, that I, I could see something glimmering on a, uh, on a bend in the river uh, where the sun was shining on it. And somehow that glimmering point was something I was being called to go out into the world and find that place. Um, so that was my experience of the call. Um, it was a bit of a tangent there, but hope a useful one. Um, but that's the so that's the second uh, phase of the descent, where you're actually going down, and it's a dissolution, going down into the depths. Highlight uh, a, a part of what you're saying here. Yep. Um, something of the the paradoxical nature of the dissolution. Like why why would a healthy, mature ego, in some way, long for or desire its own demise, its own dismemberment or dissolution? And it, it, uh, it appears that uh, in the same way that you were saying earlier, mystery or the universe or soul is what does the initiating. Um, we might say that um, it's also mystery, the world, um, maybe the soul of the world, the community, something like that, that has designed us by way of our own unfolding as a species um, to require this kind of dissolution and there's something in us that recognizes that and is is drawn to it um, despite the, the the clearly dangerous um, connotations um, you know back to the idea to not call the book the descent to soul there's a there's a kind of a subversive or dangerous element to it there and yet we're we're also seem to be drawn deeply into this um, dissolution. Yeah, well, it's a good question. I, I wonder if we took a poll, what we'd find out that um, in the dissolution phase, some people might say, yeah, I just wanted to melt and dissolve. And there's something, a spiritual longing that I said yes to that. But my guess is most people would say that's not the way they thought about what they were being called to. That they were being called um, to to cross um, through a portal into a place of greater mystery. That what they were longing for was to understand themselves in a, in a deeper kind of way. Um, and it wasn't until they were in that phase that they realized, oh my God. I'm, I'm being dismembered, and I would not have signed up for it. But now, it's developing a momentum of its own, and I, yeah. I can't the stop cost, it. The cost is everything. They have understood their life to be. Yes, that's a, it's a line from uh, um, T. S. Eliot that uh, cost nothing less than everything. Um, so, but. Every healthy adolescent has this intuition, this ancient or innate human intuition that there's something more and deeper 
than even the greatest possible peer group and social belonging and social status is something more. And probably all of our listeners um, had that experience in their teen years. And maybe they, I think a common experience, by the way, is that we look as teenagers, if we're all even vaguely healthy psychologically, we look around at the adult world and we tend to be dismayed. We're, uh, we, we tend to have a sense of what? The, li the lives of these people is a life somewhat like these so-called adults have or is what I have to look forward to in my life? And that can be incredibly depressing. This is for, in the contemporary world, one way you know you have a healthy teenager is that they are incredibly depressed and dismayed by the prospect of having the role of almost any adult they know, or at least most of them. Um, okay, so... Um, where were we? The, the dissolution phase. There's, the, there's a crisis and a call. And, um, and there's, oh, this longing to go essentially into a dark place, the sacred dark, the fruitful dark. Like think of again of a caterpillar. A caterpillar may not know that its body is about to turn into caterpillar soup. But we can imagine that the caterpillar is longing to go into an enclosed dark place because the, the moth caterpillar uh, weaves a cocoon and the um, butterfly caterpillar turns itself into a chrysalis, which essentially has the same function. So it's, it's, a, um, it's a desire for the dark. And in the contemporary um, human, at least certainly the Western world, if, there's, if a teenager has a desire to be in dark places, literally or symbolically, it's considered some kind of um, psychological illness. Whereas it can be, when, it, if, it's, when if, if it's a descent that's starting to happen, it can be a healthy thing. But I should add that it's extremely rare, rare that teenagers in the contemporary world are ever healthy enough to get into the late adolescent stage, which I call the cocoon, which is where the descent first happens. Okay, so first phase, preparation, second phase, dissolution. Third phase is soul encounter. And that's when the individual has a glimpse of their unique ecological niche, the, the place that they were born to inhabit as a gift to the world. Um, but when we have that experience, it's not literally like receiving kind of some kind of textbook description of an ecological niche. It's not that at all. Um, that when we become conscious of our ecological niche, it's given to us in metaphor. That we are shown our place in the world metaphorically through some experience that you can call a revelation or, or a vision or a soul encounter. And um, so my partner, um, Janine Marie Haugen and I, a number of years ago, we ended up calling that um, metaphoric experience of our unique ecological niche, we've, we call it our 
mythopoetic identity because it's showing us who we are in the world ecologically through uh, a mythic image or, um, or poetic phrase, so mythopoetic. Um, so in my case, um, on my first vision fast, uh, which was my first soul encounter, um, I had an encounter with um, a yellow butterfly that um, flew to me from some distance and brushed across my cheek and said in English while she was doing that, cocoon weaver. That's the way I heard it. Um, and uh, didn't, had no idea what it meant. It was a number of weeks or months before I had any clue about that at all. But I had the experience in that moment that I had just been shown what my life is truly about, even though I had no idea what it meant. And that my life would be something, had something to do with helping others to weave cocoons of the kind of transformation that um, I later ended up calling soul initiation. So that's an example of uh, that third phase, soul encounter, some glimpse. It can come through a dream, it can come through a waking experience, like in my case with the butterfly. Um, it can come through um, a deep intuition of the pattern that your life has been making all along, but you never really realized it before, and then all of a suddenly you realize this is the pattern that makes sense of my life on a deep, some deeper than social role level. Okay, so that's soul encounter. Um, that happens at the um, apex. It's actually the nadir of the journey. That happens at the bottom of the canyon. Um, and the next phase, which you don't see, by the way, in descriptions of rites of passage or in Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, is metamorphosis. That's the the aspect of the descent that uh, I see almost in no descriptions psychological or spiritual literature. And the metamorphosis is when the ego is shape-shifted by the soul encounter, by the mythopoetic identity. But the ego is actually reformed. So now think of, um, again, the, the moth of the caterpillar analogy, that um, after the caterpillar body dissolves, and what you basically have is caterpillar soup, then there are these cells that have been in the caterpillar all along that biologists call imaginal cells, which is a fantastic phrase, imaginal cells. And they call them imaginal cells because the uh, adult phase of that creature is the butterfly or the moth, and the biological word for the adult, the butterfly or moth, is the imago. So imaginal simply refers to the imago. But what the imaginal cells have been doing all along in the caterpillar is they've been imagining a butterfly or a moth. They've been imagining flight. And that has been in them since birth or conception. So in the, the middle phase for the caterpillar at the bottom of the canyon, the imaginal cells go to work. And what those imaginal cells is they do is that they start reconfiguring all those liquefied cells of the former caterpillar, caterpillar body 
which is to say the recyclable materials, and they start reforming that caterpillar body into a butterfly or a moth body. That's the metamorphosis. If, if the cocoon opened up at the solar counter phase, what would happen is that that caterpillar soup would just go splat. It would just leak out and, and you would never have a butterfly or a moth. So this metamorphic phase is absolutely essential to the caterpillar. It's when the butterfly body is made from the former caterpillar body. Likewise with humans. But after our soul encounter, there's this time when we, we're not able to fly yet. We don't even have a butterfly body yet. That, but what's changing is not our physical body much, but our ego. Our ego is being reshaped into being an agent for soul, which is a type of agent for mystery, when beforehand, in adolescence, early adolescence, the ego had been an agent for itself. And if it's a healthy adolescence, it was a healthy agent for itself. So this metamorphic phase can take months or even years, largely depending on how much guidance a person has. But it can take quite a while. Um, for Carl Jung, it probably took, I think it's something like 11 years. Um, and in the book I explain why I say that. Um, so the reshaping of the ego, and that's before you can actually deliver or offer your gift to your people, you can't do it. If you try in the metamorphic phase to bring your gift to your people, you'll just go splat. And I've, uh, after years of witnessing a certain percentage of the people I guided going splat, I realized we were leaving out this essential phase of the journey. And so we got better over the last 10 years or so of how to guide the meta, meta, um, metamorphosis phase. Okay. Can you say more about what you mean by you were leaving it out? You noticed that you were leaving it out? What, how did that come forth in people's experiences? Well, we were leaving out in the sense that after people had their soul encounters, we guides would tend to support them in creating what we call delivery systems for their mythopoetic identity. Like we, we started encouraging them to be asking themselves what kind of social role or job or career would be a, a fitting one for me to embody this mythopoetic identity, which is my way of understanding my unique ecological niche. Um, so we were inadvertently encouraging them to open up their cocoon while they were still liquefied. Not a good idea. And in a few cases, it led to um, you know, near suicidal ideation. And, um, but, or just more commonly than that would be that people would start to suppress their soul encounter and put it on the, the back burner. They didn't know what to do with it. Um, and they were starting to lose the power of that encounter with soul. So we started developing uh, a set of practices and ceremonies and it encouraged for people to go through metamorphosis and encouraged meant that it takes at least a few months, if not several, if not a few years to go through this process well. That you, 
the ego that can be an agent for soul takes a while to develop. Um, and there are practices that help that come about. So even people that are familiar with your work from having read previous books, um, I think this is going to be the part that's most unfamiliar to most people and people that are familiar with um, Joseph Campbell's or Van Gennep's um, similar but very different models. Yeah. Um, this, this is the part that's most new and uh, or most um, radical even. Uh, can you say again, uh, in, in a, like your short elevator speech, what, what is this phase? What's your shorthand way to describe so we can hear it again? Yeah. Metamorphosis is when the experience, the somatic and psychic experience of soul encounter reshapes, shapeshifts the, the healthy adolescent ego into what will eventually become a healthy adult ego. A healthy adolescent ego being an agent for itself, a healthy adult ego being an agent for mystery or an agent for soul. It's the reshaping of consciousness. Yeah. So we, in the, in the image of the Soul Canyon, um, there's a mirroring between the dissolution phase, the going down on one side of Soul Canyon and the metamorphosis, which is the coming up on the other side. And, and in a way, there's, it's not just a mirroring in the image, but it's a, it's a mirroring um, in, the, in the pattern of the process itself, which is the, the dissolution and then the, the um, reconstitution into something completely new that, that wasn't uh, accessible before um, so that it can be uh, so that the ego can become a sort of, uh, uh, you know, in service to what is discovered in the bottom, in the in-between those two phases in the, in the phase of soul encounter. Yes, precisely. I love the symmetry of that image as well. And then metamorphosis, the kind of regeneration or restructuring of the, the ego in service to soul leads into the the movement into the fifth phase, which you call enactment? Right. Enactment. So um, when the ego has been shape-shifted enough toward its adult shape, um, then um, the individual is ready to start to embody the gift for others. But in, in the enactment phase, one simply uses whatever opportunities are at hand. Um, they're like fledgling initial um, attempts to be of service to the world based on how your shape is shifting. They're just very initial ones, um, attempts. So it kind of um, equates to when the uh, butterfly first cracks open the cocoon and begins to step out. And there's a phase before it flies where it's just moving its its um, very still liquid-like wings um, up and down 
and getting um, its blood, its juices to flow through and to um, uh, flush out those wings. There's a, there's a period of time before the, the butterfly or the moth can actually fly. There's a, that there's, there's some things that need to happen in the structure of the, the butterfly or the moth. And that kind of corresponds to the enactment phase. These, uh, these beginnings of stretching one's wings, of course, is, is the metaphor there. And um, so, like for me, the enactment phase was probably at least a couple years. Where, for example, um, I was starting to um, guide vision fasts, but I wasn't cocoon weaver yet. Um, I, I didn't quite have a sense of what that, I didn't have an embodied experience of what that was. But by doing things like guiding vision fast, I've put myself into situations where I was vulnerable to the uh, shaping forces of mystery to continue doing its work on, on my ego. So enactment is, is in a, a way a continuation of metamorphosis um, or a bridge between uh, metamorphosis and the life passage of soul initiation. But, um, and during enactment, it's like we're still in the cocoon stage. We're still mainly exploring the mysteries um, and we haven't made uh, any kind of deep commitment to a, a delivery system yet. So it's um, it's after soul initiation. Sometime in, during the enactment phase, we actually then go into a uh, passage from stage to stage, from the late adolescent stage to the early adult stage. And when we enter early adulthood, that's when we need to choose a delivery system like a, an art or a discipline or a career that is a, a fitting vehicle for our mythopoetic identity. And then through the development of that delivery system and its enactment or its embodiment, um, we're continually, continuously learning what our soul encounter actually means. In other words, when we embody our soul encounter, and which is to say we, when we embody our mythopoetic identity, we're having a certain kind of conversation with the world. And it's through that conversation, which is the primary way we discover who we, who we are. Like the soul encounter has, is like, partly it's information, but the information itself is almost of no use whatsoever. Like the information that I am to help others weave cocoons of transformation. By itself, it's, there's virtually no value in that. But allowing that mystical experience to have its way with my ego, which is metamorphosis and enactment, and then choosing a delivery system, like being a vision fast guide, um, it's through the, the actual conversation that we end up discovering who we are. So it's not it's until relatively late in adulthood that we really get it. It's a long process. But meanwhile, we're gifting the world in the way, the way that only we can. So is it fair to say that um, even though there are, uh, there's the possibility of multiple descents to soul, more than one, probably not a, 
many, many of them, but more than one. And so definitely possible, if not common. But even though that's true, on any given descent to soul, when you reach the enactment phase, the enactment phase continues on for the rest of your life. Though at the beginning of what that enactment phase looks like, especially during your first descent to soul, the beginning of that enactment phase is going to look a lot different than it will later in your life. And yet it is what you'll be doing for the rest of your life. Is that fair yep. to say? It is fair to say. In a certain sense, the rest of our life is the enactment of the vision. And which, which um, generates our deepest fulfillment possible in life. And it also, at the same time, is providing our greatest service that we can provide to our people and to the world. Which is what a, a true adult does. By your That's what a true adult does. Very strange uh, definition. Yeah. <laughs> In the contemporary cultural context of what we mean by that. Yeah. It's, it's very individual, what we're doing. It's very unique. But at the same time, it is all about serving the community, the larger community of life. It's taking that particular individual role in the larger community of life that allows us to support life to unfold and enhance. You mentioned uh, David Abrams' phrase earlier, the more than human world. So the being in service to the more than human community, which includes but is not limited to the human community, all of life. I hear you emphasizing that. Yeah. That's um, something that as guides, we, we keep in mind, we say to our, ourselves and each other a lot. It's the question, who's your client? Like in our training programs, I always ask the trainees, who's your client? Because our client is not the person's ego. Our client is, we're doing this for the person's soul. And, and by doing it for their, their soul, we're doing it for the larger earth community. That as a soul initiation guides, who we hope to benefit is the larger earth community. And the adolescent ego is the sacrifice. And we don't work for the adolescent ego, but we have to keep the adolescent ego sufficiently engaged that they don't disappear. That's, that's one of the uh, arts of guiding is to keep the ego engaged enough so that it can essentially die and be reborn as a, an adult ego. And what you're saying now brings us full circle back toward some of the beginning of our conversation, which is you know, how is human development related to cultural decay on one hand and cultural regeneration on the other hand, the relationship between our own personal unfolding and uh, you know what, what you might say you're actually really up to, which is, um, on one level is supporting people in, in their descents to soul and in, in their larger arc of the journey of soul initiation to become what you call true adults. But another way to talk about what you're really up to is uh, regenerating viable human culture. You're an agent of cultural regeneration is one of the uh, ways that you describe yourself and, and, and your work. Yeah, um, there's an important distinction here that <clears throat> Um, I believe any healthy culture requires um, to have, must have um, practices and ceremonies and a map. In some ways, the map is the most important part. 
a map for the journey of soul initiation, including the descent to soul, that you can't have a healthy culture otherwise because you don't end up with many adults or elders. Um, so that's it's absolutely essential and foundational to reclaim and recreate and re-envision contemporary forms of um, guiding the descent to soul and the journey of soul initiation. But we also have to quickly say that doing that is not the most urgent thing right now. Um, that we have, we collectively humans, we have created such um, life-destroying cultures that we don't know how much long we even have left um, on this earth to make any changes at all. Or um, if we don't go extinct, um, we might have such a breakdown in our cultural and social um, infrastructure systems um, that life is about nothing but survival for who knows how many generations. <clears throat> so the more urgent things, the kind of work we're doing at Animus are not the most urgent thing. In some ways, they're the, it's most essential and foundational, but most urgent are, um, as Joanna Macy, one of our teachers, says, um, the first dimension of, of cultural change, which she calls the great turning, is to save as much of, of life as possible. And that's what a healthy adolescent society would be doing. And we definitely have healthy adolescent dimensions of our society. And there's all kinds of groups and individuals uh, working toward that, exactly saving as much of life as possible, addressing pollution, habitat loss, uh, species loss as, uh, as effectively and uh, expertly as we can. And the second dimension um, that Joanna refers to um, as the great turning is um, creating the infrastructure for a healthier culture, what she calls a life-sustaining culture. Um, new systems, new economic systems, political systems, educational systems, religious systems, and so on. Um, and those two dimensions are what's most urgent in cultural change. Uh, initiated adults are people who virtually always contribute to those first two dimensions of the Great Turning, but you don't have to be an initiated adult to contribute to those first two dimensions, or even the third dimension which has to do with values shift and consciousness shift. Um, that all people in what I call healthy psychological early adolescence can contribute to any of the um, dimensions of the great turning, as well as the adults and elders that we do have. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you for evoking, Joanna. I'm wondering if you can Tell us a little bit about the, the non-linear dynamics of this dimension of human development that you're calling the descent to soul. And we alluded to it a moment ago by saying that there can be more than one. And, uh, the, you know, there's other dynamics at play here where uh, you can end up in different phases and at multiple times. Will you, will you unpack that a little bit for us? Um, yeah, <clears throat> um, there's a few things. One is this general um, tension be between 
two phases or two aspects of life that are often spoken about in spiritual circles and that's the question of do we have to develop personally before we can serve the world I can't really serve the world in, until I've grown enough psychologically or spiritually and I don't believe that and um, <clears throat> in some ways in, in terms of the urgency that we find ourselves in as a global community now um, we need to take action, very urgent action now on all kinds of fronts. Um, and in some ways that's more important than personal development. But it's not either or, of course. And one way we grow personally is by serving the world. Even um, in what I call the that psychological stage of early adolescence. <clears throat> There's all kinds of things we can do and and many people are doing to serve the world and doing that helps us in our personal development <clears throat> now when it comes to the descent to soul the first descent actually progresses in a linear fashion that we can't go through dissolution until we've been prepared to do it and we're not going to have an encounter with soul until the adolescent ego has been dismembered somewhat or dissolved and there's nothing there's no nothing to metamorphose the ego into until there's a soul encounter and there's nothing to enact until you have a sufficiently shape-shifted ego <clears throat> but after the first descent um, or even during the first descent like you could be in the metamorphosis phase and go through yet while you're in it also being going through a deeper version of the dissolution and you might have uh, an additional soul encounter even when you're also already in metamorphosis so once you've been in any given phase of the descent the earlier phases can also be happening you can even be doing more preparation work in terms of cultivating wholeness and so on <clears throat> um, and then Starting with the second descent, let me say again, most contemporary humans never have even a first descent. And one is enough. You don't need to have more than one. But many of the people I've worked with um, have had multiple descents to soul. And um, on the second one, you can go so quickly through the dissolution phase that it's just almost you just almost instantly have a a soul encounter. In other words, the ego can be uh, fluid enough after the first descent that uh, going through the portal to an encounter with soul can happen relatively easily. Um, and I'll say one other aspect of the non-linear possibility, and that is um, I've come to understand that no one ever fully completes the tasks of any stage of life. That, we, that when we're in that stage, we're addressing our tasks the best we can. And when we've gotten far enough with the task, then mystery moves us to the next stage. But there's still unfinished business from the earlier stages. Um, so that we can be in, for example, the early adolescent stage, but, and we have unfinished business from the uh, developmental tasks of the stages childhood 
And so that doesn't mean we're back in childhood. That means we're, we're still working on our childhood tasks even when we're in adolescence. And so would you say that the same is true of the for the phases of a descent to soul, that they're always in some way uh, unfinished, incomplete? Like the tasks of Yeah, or at least that there's there's more that can happen. So like if you can see my hand, the, the graph I gave you of Soul Canyon goes like this. But for any given individual the graph could go something like this. And then down, even deeper. And down, then even deeper. Down more across. Yeah. For the audio. And unfortunately the graph can also go like this. Down, back up. Back up. They, they, the journey gets aborted. Like if you don't know what's happening to you and your ego is starting to dissolve and you don't know you're on a descent to soul, you might have the unfortunate experience of getting help from a mental health professional and they would give you medication or uh, engage in an intervention that would pull you back up. That's what Jung was tempted to do for himself when he was going through dissolution. He was afraid he was going through a psychosis. And there's all kinds of things he could have done to abort the journey, but amazingly enough, he didn't. And he had no guides and no map and very little understanding of what was going on for him. In some ways, he pioneered this entire territory for the rest of Western culture. And if he had used his psychiatrist tools to abort his journey, then we might never have received what we have from Carl Jung. So uh, clearly you're implying um, through Jung and also from your own experience and, and countless other people as well that one doesn't need a, a soul initiation guide to find their way uh, through Soul Canyon, through a descent to soul or into the journey of soul initiation. Oh. Uh, into true adulthood, um, and yet there is value. I would presume you would say that there's value to uh, for an individual to have uh, access to that kind of guidance, with the, what you would call a soul initiation guide, um, and also to have that <clears throat> as a cultural um, system for a given culture is to have guides that are a part of their um, enactment of their mythopoetic identity of their own soul life is to, uh, as a delivery system of um, being a, a guide for other people in this territory. So um, what what is what is the importance of having a guide? It's, and what does that look like for people? What would it look like to have guidance in that way? Yeah, it's um, somebody who has a map of the territory. They've never been in your particular wilderness before, but they know what it's like to be in wilderness. Uh, psycho-spiritual as well as uh, physical wilderness. Um, and so they can help you understand what's going on for you. And they have practices and ceremonies that help deepen each of the phases. So um, having a guide can make all the difference in the world. It is possible, um, as you mentioned, um, like in my case and Carl Jung's case, um, to um, 
go through the journey without guides um, because it's built into our human psyches that, that this experience is waiting for us. Just like the caterpillar knows to weave a cocoon, even if, even if we might imagine it has no sense of what would, is going to happen in that cocoon. And I, I should um, back up and say, um, early in, in my cocoon stage, I, I didn't have any guidance. I, I knew nobody who understood what I was going through. But um, before too many years in that stage, I, I did meet my first teachers of this work, Stephen Foster and Meredith Little, who did guide me from a distance, at least, through their uh, handbook and through letters, and, uh, probably some phone calls. So I did, I did have some guidance of the sort that Carl Jung didn't have. Carl Jung did have um, a companion, uh, a Tony Wolf, who was his mistress, who, as far as I know, or we know, um, did, hadn't gone through that journey herself beforehand, but she was an indispensable companion for Jung on that journey. So uh, as we start to begin to wrap up here, uh, it seems like a good place for me to just uh, mention uh, my gratitude to you for, um, you know, I'm not one of those people that didn't have any guidance along that journey. And uh, you know, for the first couple of years, it was through your book, Soulcraft, and then um, in person with you and, uh, and studying with you and having you as a uh, primary mentor in my life so many years and, and uh, as a colleague as well. And I know that I'm not the only one that has that sentiment for you and is so grateful for, um, for your work and guidance and all the forms that you have, have put that out there and continue to put that out there. And with this, this new book that um, is about to come out here in a couple of days, um, you are offering yet another um, just priceless gem for for people, for individual persons, and also for our for our culture, a kind of uh, uh, anchor in a way into uh, an anchor into uh, another possibility, another um, uh, dream of the earth, as Thomas Berry said, uh, of human viable human earth relations. Uh, and uh, your contributions to that are, um, as I hope has been highlighted here thoroughly in the, our conversation, your contributions to that are both um uh grand on a, in a in a large scale and also very personal and very meaningful to um so many people i know and, and to me in particular um so thank you for that um maybe just a couple of closing questions uh one is do you have anything else you want to add to this conversation anything else that you want to articulate um, well, first, thank you so much for saying that, Nate. Um, means a lot to me, and, um, it's, and it's been my greatest life fulfillment to to do this work. as challenging and uh, incredibly difficult. It has been at times. It's mostly entirely joyful. Um, and is there anything else? Any loose ends? There's probably dozens of them. I know I have a lot of questions that I. I'd love to ask you on uh, on recording that we're not getting to today. Maybe I can lure you back on. Uh, yes. In weeks or months down the road. Yeah, we could, we can do another show. 
you want to say anything about how people can access you, find your work in addition to reading this book? Yeah, my work and um, all the other Animus guides, including Nate, um, you can find us on the web at uh, animus.org. That's A-N-I-M-A-S, Animus, which is um, the Spanish word for souls, Animas. Um, the name of our institute is Animus Valley Institute, because here in Durango, we're in the Valley of the Animus River. So you can find us online, www.animus.org. And um, you can find the new book, The Journey of Soul Initiation, at any place that books are sold. Great. The, the book is The Journey of Soul Initiation, a field guide for visionaries, evolutionaries, and revolutionaries. Um, and even though we talked specifically about the phases of the descent to soul, um, for a short part of our conversation, we were kind of circling around it for uh, a lot of our conversation. Um, the book goes into a lot more detail about each of those specific phases and uh, truly is a, a field guide, as the subtitle um, suggests. Yeah, but I'll, um, I'll add that probably half the words, more than half the words in the book are stories from people uh, largely in their own words of their experience of all five phases of the descent. Uh, many of the people are those I've uh, guided along with my colleagues, and then there's some um, some celebrities, some well-known people like Carl Jung, um, and about his Red Book, which was his uh, Descent to Soul, and Joanna Macy, her story is in there, and William Butler Yeats, and the um, depth psychologist Robert Johnson, and uh, a few others are in there. So it's it's mostly a book of stories, really. Yes, and they're uh, um, lovingly uh, presented as well. Thank you. Okay, thank you so much, Bill, for, for joining us today. It's been a, a pleasure. I look forward to more. You're very welcome. Uh, been my pleasure. And um, yeah, um, they'll for sure be more. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more conversations like this one, please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And if you want to help the show grow into something more sustainable, please consider leaving a five-star review so others can find it more easily. Thanks for listening. I'm Nate Bacon, and this is Conversations for the Future.